This episode is brought to you by Pop-Up Men's Events. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we really don't have much going on in the way of advertisers here. But actually, this is just a good way to, to pause to say, hey, I know a lot of you, especially if you may be a man, are saying, hey, I'd, I'd like to like hang out with Brian Tome someday. That'd be kind of good. Well, we're going to have a pop-up men event, maybe coming near you this spring. We're going to have an event in Nashville, Tennessee. We're going to have one in Texas. We're going to have one at Pikes Peak in Colorado. It's just a taste of man camp. It's a hyper, hyper scaled down version. It's just one night of camping. Good reason to get away from the normal grind of your life. Good reason to sit around a campfire and drink your favorite beverage and maybe have some laughs and, and maybe get to know some dudes or, or just have some time to just think on your own. There's going to be live music, teaching from yours truly, and all that stuff. And, and actually optional one-night camping. You can choose to camp or not if you would like to. So how do you find out about that? Go to mancamp.us. Go to mancamp.us, and I'd love to see you there. Welcome to The Aggressive Life. Your life might get saved today. Today may be the day that sometime in the future you look back and you said, man, if I didn't listen to the aggressive life, I would be dead today. That's right, because we're going to talk about survival. Do you know how to survive when the fit hits the shan? Do you know? Do you, you can figure that out if you want. Do you, do you know what to do in case all the power goes out in your house for multiple days? Would you know what to do in case your car broke down in the middle of nowhere and you had no idea how to get out of someplace? Would, do you know the basics of survival, how to make a fire, how to do a shelter? Today, we want to help you get those basics or at least know how to learn in those basics. Today, I'm introducing you to a true American badass. Her name is Jessie Krebs. And if she has anything to say about it, she just might make you a badass too. She's a former U.S. Air Force SEER, that's SEER, S-E-R-E, for Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape Specialist. She's taught hundreds of America's military elite how to prepare for and survive the unexpected. After she had an honorary discharge, she used her skills as a backcountry guide before founding her own SEER training course in Colorado. It's there that her and her team teach both civilians and outdoor professionals how to prepare, adapt, and survive the outdoors. Jessie's unparalleled combination of creativity, optimism, and toughness have made her one of the world's leading survival experts. She's been featured on a number of international survival TV shows, on National Geographic's Migrations, and she became one of the only modern humans to complete a primitive crossing of hundreds of miles of Tanzanian Serengeti on foot. Man, She's an instructor of an incredibly popular master class on wilderness survival. We're talking to Jesse Krebs. Wow, Brian, what an introduction. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to be here, man. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm, I'm really excited about this. I mean, I, I, I think I say that all the time. I'm really excited about this. Truth be known, I'm not always equally excited about every guest. But you today, very very excited. What, what do you think the, have you thought much about the 
recent, I think, fixation it is with survival things and survival themes. I, I've been around long enough that uh, this, this wasn't a thing that you'd read about or see depicted in the 70s, 80s, or 90s. It's kind of a big thing with alone. Well, I don't, I don't even tell you what it's from. So what, what do you think this is? A, what, what's going on here? You know, I think people are feeling more and more disconnected from the wilderness, actually. We've just withdrawn so much from being outside. And I think it really does fill in a piece for us that is missing in really busy lives. But I think it's also just the social climate and overpopulation and just so much happening with the world in general that I think more and more people are running away to the wilderness just to get away from it all and distress. But also because things happen, right? We've seen a pandemic, we've seen tsunamis, we've seen things happen where people end up in trouble and a lot of times they don't know what to do. So that feeling of, ooh, wait a minute, um, you know, we can see the news around the world and I think that brings it more into the living room and makes it more personalized for a lot of people. And they're like, oh, wait a minute. I really don't think I know what to do if something goes wrong. Yeah, there's people like you and I who are drawn to this sort of stuff. But there's also people who just don't want to camp, do not like camping. They, they make all the classic lines, right? Oh, my, my, my idea of camping is in a day's in without cable television or something like that. Like I haven't heard that 4,000 times, you know. But there, but there is a, an intrigue with this topic, as you see with the runaway success of, I think, Walking Dead. I think that was the beginning of it. People just think in their minds, what happens when everything I know is gone? How, how would I survive? Uh, survival, Survivor actually was one of it, uh, one of them early, early on. But then Alone, are, are, you, are you an Alone junkie? Do you watch the Alones? I've watched a few of them, yeah. It's pretty good. It's been likened to the Survival Olympics, which is, is a pretty good descriptor, I think. <laughs> is there Survival Olympics? <laughs> I, not that I know of. Not officially that I'm aware of. So it, this is the closest we're going to get, right? Although the videoing yourself, like having to film yourself, that would be the part that would be my nightmare, personally. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No kidding. You're trying to f- just feed yourself, and then you got that. I, I've thought many times that we actually had a survival not a survivor, excuse me, an alone contestant on, uh, gosh, when was that dirt? That was, I don't know, last year. I mean, some time ago. And, and I forgot to ask her because I would think they must be telling those people, we're going to pay you for every minute of footage that we air to incentivize them to take the footage, right? Because you're worried about staying warm and feeding yourself and I'm going to lug around 50 pounds of camera equipment. There's got to be an incentive for them. Yes, definitely. Yeah, it would suck. That would be the part that I would hate the most, definitely. <laughs> so what do you think keeps the average person from getting outdoors and pushing themselves more than we do? I think it's a combination of of stress, life. So many people are living in cities and away from all that to begin with. Also, a lot of them didn't have an introduction to it. You know, we're part of a generation now where most people weren't raised on a farm or a small town and and had time that they went out camping with the family. So it's a whole generation of people being brought up now that really don't have any experience with the wilderness to begin with. So why would they seek it out now? It is really odd that things that everybody has done on every corner of the globe and all of history, you have to defend now. Like you, you have to defend why you'd want to take vacation time sleeping in a tent. You have to defend why you would hunt something and kill something and eat it when like 
you know, <laughs> everybody's had chickens in their backyard and wrung their neck, but now it's like you got to give a theological treatise as to why you can kill something and eat it. I mean, we, we live in just weird times, don't we? Mm-hmm. It's very disconnected. We're very disconnected from even each other, much less the outdoors and other forms of life. Unless it's a cat or a dog or a fish or something, we don't tend to interact with other other life in general besides other humans. Most people are terrified of the outdoors, not just doing some, not the idea of having a week alone in the Arctic, some extreme thing like that, but but terrified of being broken down on the side of a road and no one's driving by and you're not sure what to do. When, when do you think we became so afraid of the outdoors? You know, it's kind of funny to say this on a podcast, but I think media is a big part of it. How many car accidents are there in a given day? How many heart attacks, right? But what makes the news? Oh, somebody got lost today out in the blah, blah, blah wilderness area. You know, or, oh, we just rescued someone after five days. They were out there, right? So we get all this dramatization and all this hype about the wilderness when your odds of dying in the wilderness are minuscule compared to all the other things that are likely to kill us. So I think media has a lot to do with it. And of course, yeah, survival movies and stories where it shows the drama and it really tries to just make it seem so much worse and so much more horrifying, right? Which I'm even saying more horrifying when it's not. To me, the wilderness is a wonderful, peaceful place to be, uh, especially since we've killed off most of the major predators on especially our continent. Like Tanzania, yeah, there were definitely some things out there that were ready to kill us and uh, seemed like everything there was trying to kill us. But come on, in the United States especially, like... Your odds of, of getting attacked by a grizzly or a mountain lion or a pack of coyotes or wolves are so tiny, uh, but that's not how it's perceived in our in our minds, right? Just because of how it's portrayed, I think, it, mostly in the media. I camp a lot, about 30, 30 nights a year is what, what, is what I average in all different kinds of places. A lot of that is out west and and uh, in bear country, and you know, I've, you know, I've, I've got my guns that I take when I'm out there, and all this stuff. But the truth of the matter is, I tell people, the only time that I've ever seen a bear was driving in a car through Tennessee on the side of the road, a black bear, and then when I went to Alaska, I, I did see a good bit in Alaska. But like, I've never, I've never had one come in a campsite. But we've done all the stuff of throwing a rope over the tree and pulling it up. Anymore now, we just leave cracked eggs out open at night. We, we, ne- we never, honestly, we never ever see one. It's not as terrifying as you would think. Why, do you agree with that? You want to tell me I'm stupid when I camp? What do you think? No, I, I feel like that's the case most of the time as well. I mean, I've spent so many times out with, with groups of students and it's part of the mandate with whatever company I'm working with that we have to put up a bear hang every single night. And we've never had had them come into camp or, or even disturb the bear hang or try to get at it. Now, some of the groups have. Mine personally haven't. Um, and we do come across bear occasionally out there, but it is so rare. And usually if you, know, if you act like prey, you're prey. So we and our ignorance now, that's mostly what keeps us from being prey. Anything that makes noise in the wilderness is a predator or it's an, a hurt animal or something, right? Or it's a bovine, like a moose that's just coming through and rut and it doesn't care what the heck kind of noise it's making, right? It doesn't care. 
But most of the time, we inept humans, we go bumbling around in the wilderness and we're loud and there's no way we could have made it to adulthood, right? And so now we're big enough, we must be pretty tough too because that's what we're communicating. So most of the time, that's what kind of keeps them away. It's the bears are, that are habituated because you're going out, it sounds like, away from where most of the, the people go to hang out. You know, if you go to the big parks in Yellowstone and places where people are a lot, then the bear get habituated to humans and human food and they're more likely to come around. But if you're out there in the wilderness still and far enough away from people where they don't really see you, they smell you and they're like, I, hey, that might be appetizing, but I don't know what that is. And that could be a threat. That could be dangerous, especially when you're dealing with black bear. Black bear tend to be, for the most part, much more reticent. They're more like, I consider them kind of be big raccoons in a way. It's the large males, though, of the black bear especially, and if, if they're habituated, those are the ones that can be dangerous. But again, I mean, you, you might have a, a handful, not even that, you know, over a decade, you might have a handful of black bear attacks. That makes a, a, a lot of sense that it would be the case inside the national parks. I hadn't thought, though, before of the, the, the fact that I'm now taking, like, no re- precautions <laughs> could actually be a great defensive mechanism because it's showing people or bears that I'm, I'm not afraid of them. I, it's, I, I, want, I want a bear to come into camp. I do. I want, not because I want to shoot one. I, I, I want a story to tell. Honestly, we just leave bacon out. Just leave it there. Like, like nothing happens at all. It's salted. It'll, it'll stay. All that stuff. Well, enough of that. Tanzania, you tease this enough. Let's talk about how cool you are. Tell us what you did in Tanzania. And you mentioned that there were things that could eat you and kill you there. So tell us. Yeah, I mean, we didn't have weapons. Um, we did have some people around that could, in a pinch, could come and come to our aid if, if we needed them to. But the problem was, like, they would be intense a little ways away from us. And it's like, if anything grabs you by the leg and hauls you out, right? It, they're gonna, uh, the hyenas, especially the first few days, that was the big one. They kept sneaking up and we could see them through the firelight and the starlight, moonlight, whatever. We could see them trying to sneak up, right? Like crouch and come forward into camp. You're gonna be disemboweled before anybody manages to get out of their <laughs> tent, you know? Like, that's not gonna do you much good. Or, you know, the crocodiles. Like, there was one point I, I like tied myself to the bank, right? So we had some rope and I tie myself off and I've got this metal jerry can and I rigged the top of it, tie it open, and I'm literally like 15 feet from the water's edge, hanging, you know, it's, it's this really steep like crocodile slide, right? So it's all this slick mud going down into this muddy water. And I'm like tied onto the bank and I'm grabbing this jerry can and like flinging it into the water and then pulling it back up. And as I'm pulling it up the embankment, it's getting like mud is just, you know, funneling into the top and we're like, we don't care. <laughs> we don't care how much mud gets in that thing. There's no way we're getting closer to that water with the crocodiles down there. And what are you doing this for? What, what, I understand the, the can hovering over water. Was there a survival point to that or what? With the water that muddy, you can't tell if there's a crocodile lurking right below the surface. So, And I'm, in, I'm literally standing in a crocodile slide. <laughs> so to get water, we're like, I'm chugging, you know, just Man. hauling, you know, throwing this jerry can out there and then have with a rope on it and pulling it back to my myself and it's getting full of mud, but we're like, we don't care. We're not getting any closer to that water than we have to, you know? And then of course you got the hippos, which are the ones that kill more than anybody else, anything else out there. So yeah, lots of critters want to get you. What got you to Tanzania to do this adventure? Luck. <laughs> Luck and divine providence. Um, yeah, I just, 
I have a friend uh, who runs Voga, Vermont Outdoor Guide Association, and um, he's been tapped a few times for a few different shows. And so he sent me the casting call for it back when that, it was back in 2015. And uh, yeah, somehow managed to get through the process and get selected to be one of the 20 to, to start the hike. So What was the show? I, didn't, I don't know that show. What is it? It's called Migrations with a Y. Oh, okay. It's the National Geographic one. Exactly. I got a new one to put on the list. There, we got we got to do that for sure. So, if you look at your it's your background, was there a progression? Like for me, it would be not interested much in the outdoors, interested in camping, and then the next level would be more the hardcore survival stuff that you're doing, which. I'm really not doing. I'm, I, I want to pick your brain on how to do that better. Not that I want to do it for a vacation, but just to be prepared. Like, what, what, what was your progression? Did you wake up in your family always doing stuff in the outdoors? Were you forced to survive with wolves when you were a child? How did you become so <laughs> conversant? I, did, I daydreamed about being, you know, Mowgli and left out in the jungle somewhere and raised by animals. But no, I have a mom who loves the outdoors as well. She's a master gardener. She loves to fish. So she'd take me out camping quite a bit when I was a kid. And I would usually stay on the bank. I just wanted to be picking apart scat and climbing trees and making mud pies and catching frogs and whatever else I could do. Um, and so that it felt like I was always kind of a, a solitary kid. I was an only child until I got older and realized I had half siblings and step siblings out there. So I was just a loner. And um, I had infant and childhood sexual abuse as well. Mm. That for me became my refuge. The wilderness was where I went to because I didn't feel like people were safe. So I'd sneak out of the house and I'd go climb a tree and fall asleep in the tree. I'd, I just wanted to be outside. And I felt like I wasn't judged. You know, nobody was going to expect anything from me. I could just be me, whatever that was. And it felt a lot safer. So at 18, when I joined the military, and that was mostly because I felt like I was trapped in small town Michigan. Um, Mom was an adventurer. She'd, you know, hiked the Himalayas and ridden elephants and Nepal and took me to Europe when I was 12. And so she, she was a big traveler and adventurer. And I really wanted that. And I was really feeling trapped in a small town. So I'm like, well, I'll get college and I'll get to travel. So I'm going to join the military. So when I joined the Air Force, I had no idea that SEER even existed. Uh, I just joined up actually to be a mechanic because I figured I would be using my hands at least. And I scored higher than most females in mechanical ability. So I went in mechanics, but then on the 15th day, they showed SEER and it was all outside and... Uh, I'm like, man, that looks a lot better than a mechanic shop. <laughs> that looks like a lot nicer place to be. So, and I already felt this connection with the outdoors, so it was perfect for me. Uh, the only part that I didn't get was that I was going to have to teach, right? I was going to have to work with people because that was something I was not familiar with. I was very closed off, very shy, talked in a very soft voice. Over and over again, I'd have an instructor in my face going, use your instructor voice. But by the time they were done with me, after it took about a year for training, and uh, you know, first time I had a student next to me and I'm teaching something, and he's kind of cringing and, and comforting his ears, and I'm like, what's the matter with you? He's like, can you talk a little softer? And I'm like, yes, power. <laughs> yeah, and to my horror, I, my horror, I realized that I actually really enjoy teaching, that I actually really love it, and I exceptionally like um, teaching people who feel like it's not accessible to them, that feel meek and mild and a lot like I did when I first entered into it, that the wilderness isn't for me and it's this terrifying, scary place and, ooh, that's only for, you know, usually it's tough white males. <laughs> and it's like, no, actually, they can be for any of us. Come on, let's go play. 
And so that's what I really like to do is to watch that light bulb come on and really help people feel empowered and like, hey, I got this. Let's go. When you went into SEER, did they they trained you just to train others or did in the training, did you have to earn your stripes with long stints in the wilderness by yourself? How, how did that work out? Sure, yeah. SEER works off of something called the ICE acronym. The military loves its acronyms. So ICE is intensity, credibility, and enthusiasm. So a big part of what we're teaching, right, we're teaching people that have the potential to go down behind enemy lines and have to take care of themselves. And this can be in any environment around the planet. It could be a rainforest. It can be the desert. It can be open ocean. It can be anywhere, Arctic, right? So they need to know how to take care of themselves in each of those environments and then also how to hopefully not get captured if they're in those environments so how to change that to tactical? How do I meet? How do I make a fire if I'm trying to be tactical in an Arctic situation, right, versus a jungle? And then if for some reason you do get caught, despite all your efforts, okay, great, now what do you do when you're in captivity? How can you resist interrogation? How can you keep yourself alive until hopefully you're released, right? So that was, that was all part of it. So we have to go through that training. So the first six months of training to be a SEER instructor is basically putting you through those, those steps, right? So you have this week we're going to spend the first few days talking about jungle environments, and then we're going to go off to the jungle, and you're going to survive there for the next week or so. And then we're going to go back, take a couple days off. Now we're going to go and talk about desert, and we'll talk about the principles and how things are going to be modified in the desert, and then we're going to go out to the desert environment. So yes, they definitely put instructors through their paces over those six months, and then the next six months is OJT. So we get assigned to a trainer, we get assigned students. First class, I might teach 10%, 20% of the lessons with my trainer watching me and giving me feedback. Next class, I add on a few more classes and so on until I'm teaching 100% of the classes. My trainer's just giving me feedback. Once they decide I'm good to go, great, I get my hit, and ta-da, I'm a full instructor. So that's the basic outline. It is really ominous to think about surviving out in the middle of nothingness to, you know, be able to just keep yourself going. It seems like when I watch the the TV show Alone, of which there's seven seasons, eight seasons, I've seen them all. They've, it seems like the Air Force is disproportionately represented in that. And I guess that makes sense because if you're flying, you're going to be, you know, wrecked in the middle of nowhere more frequently than if you're, you know, in the Navy or in the Army, right? Is that the idea? I don't know. I think, you know, each of the branches has their own SEER school. So it exists for all of them. So I'm not sure why Air Force is represented a little bit more, but I know what you mean. Because, um, I mean, anybody has a chance. Marines, Army, Navy, they all get dropped behind enemy lines. They all end up in their own way getting into combat, right? So um, Air Force is just, I don't know, maybe we're just a little more adventurous and want to get on TV more. <laughs> <laughs> so give us a little master class right now. Master class in survival. There's five needs that you say that we need. Tell us what those five needs are and just help us out in case this happens to us tomorrow. We could, you could save our life. You could save our life right now because we, none of us know what's going to happen tomorrow. Correct. 
and that's the plan, right? Really, that's my mission is to make sure there's fewer of those horrifying survival stories out there. I don't right. want them. I want people to come back safe and healthy, and even if things go wrong, to be like, "Whoa, that was a fun adventure!" But here I am, right? That's what I'm really looking for. So sure. So survival, we would look at the five basic needs, and so I like to do this using fingers, right? Just because we got five fingers, hopefully you got all five of them when you find yourself in the situation, and you can list them off. So your first one, number one priority is to get out of there. Signaling, right? Hmm. If I signal properly and effectively and help rescuers find me, ta-da, I don't have to do the rest of them. I'm rescued. I'm back at a hotel or I'm back home. Life is good. So that's number one. Two is take care of you. And I think of this as personal protection. And personal protection consists of three basic things. And they are called your lines of defense. The five basic needs in general any order. I don't care, right? Every situation is different. I have no idea which one I'm going to use first, second, third, blah, blah, blah. But if I decide that thermal regulation, which is what we're calling the personal protection, if I decide that's my priority in this given moment, there is an order, okay? So number one defense against the elements is your clothing and any equipment you have, right? So you were talking about driving off the road. You got a car. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of equipment in a car. So that car and your clothing, any clothing you came into the situation, that's your number one defense right there. Second line of defense, if your clothing and the equipment is not going to be adequate, is going to be a shelter. Most things on the planet, they get, they get by just fine with whatever they consider clothing, whether that's fur, blubber, feathers, scales, whatever it is. That's their clothing, and if it's not adequate, they find or they make some kind of a shelter, Right. If both of those put together are not going to be adequate, now we go to the third line of defense, and that's fire, right? A lot of people mess up because they try to go straight to fire, and they skip clothing and equipment, and they skip shelter. Imagine trying to build a fire in heinous weather, right? The wind's howling, it's raining, whatever's going on. Imagine trying to build that fire without a shelter to protect it. Not going to be very successful, right? And if it's really nasty out, is, is standing around a fire in the blatant wind and howling and rain, is that going to be fun? <laughs> is this a good place to be, right? Three, I want you to think of Alice in Wonderland. Drink me, right? She's got that little vial. You can imagine how long you could survive on that one granola bar you brought with you if you were like three inches tall, okay? But I want you to focus on the drink, not eat, okay? This is sustenance. So number three is drink me as sustenance. And so water is much, much, much more important than the food thing. We can go 30 days usually pretty easy without food, but water, on average, about three. If you eat, you're only dehydrating yourself faster and you're going to die sooner, okay? So three is sustenance. Four, explore. These are travel techniques, how to move from point A to point B, navigation, right? So this is map and compass work. It's um, natural navigation. It's how to move in different environments, right? How I move across an Arctic landscape versus a desert versus a jungle. Those are going to be completely different. And there are things you can use to help yourself get through those. And then five, stay alive. And that's everything to have to do with health. Most important, really, which is usually mental health right? People have survived heinous injuries, awful stuff out there by having a mental fortitude, by saying, I'm not giving up right now. I'm going to keep pushing through. 
and by also calming themselves down. A lot of people have this impetus to go, 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 right? Everything's, they feel like everything's going wrong or something's starting to snowball and they're freaking out and they try to just go. I gotta self-rescue, I gotta get myself out of here. And that's usually when they get themselves in more trouble. You're more likely to get injured when you're moving, right? And you're wasting a lot more energy and water by doing so. So again, in most situations, it's better to stay still, shelter in place, and help rescue find you by doing some good signaling. The people who keep hiking, who keep moving, generally they end up in worse trouble. <laughs> hmm, interesting. The three kinds of uh, camping I do on any given year is backpack hunting, where I go out for a few days and, you know, Try to try to get an elk and then come back and resupply after a few days. Motorcycle camping, where I'm on my adventure motorcycle out in the national forest or something like that, and then overlanding, um, which you know, I'm with my wife and our truck and a rooftop tent and all that stuff. In all those three situations, I'm very well pu- prepared. I'm very well planned out. I know what supplies I need. I know what emergency stuff. I've 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 got them with me. But when it comes to like my normal life. I pretty much have nothing, and that's probably not a good idea, right? I mean, I should probably, like in my truck right now, I don't, I don't have anything in there in case I break down the side of the road. If I've got warm clothes on, then that's good. But a lot of people I know have got always blankets or certain equipment in their cars. I don't. I need to get better. I don't. I probably should have just basic stuff in my normal backpack I take, I go to work with every day. Yes? No? I mean, do you, are there basic things that you recommend us always having on our person or in our car? Sure, definitely. I think, you know, the more you go out and do stuff, obviously, the more that's necessary. But, and it's, there's also a spectrum of how much do you know? Right? If you know a lot, if you know how to make rope out of the carpet in your car, if you know how to cut out pieces and make a shelter, if you know how to sew things together and make a sleeping bag, great. Then you probably don't need as much of equipment of the equipment around because you, you already know how to make it out of what's out there, right? If you're a, a tribal person who's lived off the land, a native person who's very well versed in how to live in primitive living, then you don't need a lot of that stuff. But for those of us who are in the modern humans, it's absolutely a nice thing to have a thumb drill, which is another word for a lighter, right? Having a lighter start a fire, there's nothing wrong with that. Having just a few things in your pockets can make a huge difference in your ability to survive. It won't necessarily make you more comfortable if it's just a few things in your pocket, but it can definitely make the difference between life and death, right? So having things going through that list, if I live in a rainforest and there's plenty of water around, maybe I'm not too concerned about taking a water bottle and and water uh, disinfection tablets even. Um, Because even if if I don't disinfect it, still drink the water. Unless it's, you think it's seriously gonna kill you, drink it. Even if it makes you sick, you're probably not gonna get sick for a little while. So go ahead and drink the water. So in that situation, I don't really care too much about the water factor, right? But I may definitely want some, something to help me build a fire. So some kind of a tinder and some kind of a, an ignition source. And even a backup ignition source isn't a bad idea either, especially when we have things like Fresnel lenses, which are these little credit card things that you can start a fire with, right? So have that and a lighter or a ferro rod, have a few things like that to start a fire if you need to, because it's also a very good signal. Your clothing itself can be a good signal. So if you have like brilliant blue or bright orange or bright red rain gear or clothing or something that's reversible if you're hunting, so that if you do need to signal someone, you can do that fairly easily. So signaling stuff, so just go through those five basic needs, right? Do you have something for signaling? What do you have to put up a quick emergency shelter? And those can be things like just a garbage bag, 
right? Literally having a good industrial-sized garbage bag can act as a raincoat. You can stuff it with, with debris and make it into a sleeping bag. A lot I can do with that. So it can be my, some of my clothing and equipment, and I can even cut part of it and make it into a shelter as well, especially if you have like a little piece of line, right? Just a piece of 550 cord or some rope, even your shoelaces to rig it up over your head. So there I'm taking care of some personal protection stuff. Um, for your navigation, do you have just a, a tiny little button compass, right? Literally the size of a button that'll just tell you which direction's which. Great. Um, what do you have for first aid stuff? Do you at least have critical medications? If I have some kind of condition where I need my meds every day or things are going to get really bad really quickly, great. Now you just broke your leg and you're not going to get that medication tonight. So taking things at least like that, just the basics that you know you really need. A first aid kit in general is nice as well. Maybe you're doing a short hike or something, you don't want to take one with you, great, but at least take a little bit of something so that you know what to do and you have at least what you absolutely know you're going to need ahead of time. And a car kit is different than what I might take with me, you know, hiking, right? So you can have these little things just tucked away in little spots around your vehicle, around your office, at home. Um, a lot of people are calling them bug out bags now, right, where you have just this little bag that you know, let's say you have to evacuate your home. You grab that bag, it's got everything you need. It's got proof that you own that house. It's got all your insurance stuff. It's got um, water. It's got ways to purify water if you have to find wild water. It's got some snacks. It's got ways to make a fire. It's got shelter stuff. It's got all that right there and hopefully not too big of a container. So you can literally just grab that bag and evacuate if you have to. Why would you, why would you need a bug out bag instead of a get home bag. That never made sense to me. Like I'm going to leave a place where there's shelter and there's every kind of situation and supply right there that I've worked for years and years to have. What would be the situation where I would ever leave my house unless there's guerrilla warfare coming to my neighborhood? I don't, I don't understand that. Why, why don't I have a get home bag? Why have a bug out bag? When's that, what's that, realistically, what's that going to ever do? You can have a little bit of both. It's not bad to be prepared in either situation. But the get the bug out bag is when the house has been compromised. You've got a fire raging through. You've got earthquakes. You've got a tsunami. There's all kinds of things that have happened, right? Uh, We've okay. seen that right. recently. Or, you know, even pandemics, right? If things get bad enough and people yeah. start looting or whatever, and you're just like, nope, this isn't the place to be anymore. It's time to go. <laughs> so that's... I guess that makes sense. All right. And if I live in inner city Los Angeles, that'd be probably a bigger deal. Yeah, okay, I get it. How about this one too? I, all these survival shows, not the survival shows, I know it's best practices when you have a stream, you have a lake, you purify the water. Man, as a, as a little kid, I, I never purified any water. I was out in the woods. I just drink out of any creek that was there, never had any, any problem. What's the likelihood of drinking some water out in the middle of a national forest that's going to jack up our intestines? Is it, I mean, is it one in 10 times, one in four times? It seems like a big deal. Everyone's doing it. I'm just not sure how necessary it is. Yeah, you know, it's just the, the more time that passes, the worse things get. Um, Giardia is a threat. That's the, one of the most common and the nastiest one of the, the contaminants we can get out there. And that's just from beaver, right, and mammals upstream and, and making a beaver, beaver pond that carries in their feces and their urine, and, and there we go. We take a drink, and suddenly we've got it. And usually there is a critical mass, right? Some people have disinfected their water for years, out camping in the middle of nowhere, never gotten sick, 
everything's fine. And then one time they, purif- they disinfect it and they didn't uh, bleed the bottle. They didn't turn it upside down after the disinfectant was in and loosen the cap and make sure that the threads got coated. And it just so happened that that particular time, the water was nasty enough and bad enough that just by touching the threads of that bottle to their lips as they took a drink, this time they got Giardia or they got sick, right? Oh my gosh. So, so it's wow. really up to you, right, what, what you're willing to risk. And, you know, we used to think of boiling as the gold standard. Just boil your water and you're good to go. Sorry, I've been in places now where, like Death Valley, upstream of this beautiful crystal clear spring, are these two huge, like I'm talking 20-foot diameter, old, rusted out containers, right? 15 feet tall, 20-foot diameter with cyanide written on the side of them, right? (laughs) And then I've been in places in Utah where, you see a beautiful little pond. It looks like a little pond. Great. I'd go up there and get water, and it's been fenced off. And you can see where cattle have busted down the fence and gotten in there and drunk the water. And you can see their carcasses in various states of decay all around this pond. So I don't know what's in that water, wow. but I don't want to drink it, right? So boiling is not going to take care of cyanide. <laughs> it's not going to take care of some of the heavy metals and toxins we're dumping into the, into the water systems. So it's not the gold standard anymore. And that's why filters are becoming so popular. There is still a difference between most filters and disinfection, right? A filter is simply to filter out the chunks. It just so happens we're getting filters that are very good at getting down to certain microns that's taking out basically everything that's nasty in that water. But not all the time, not all filters are created equal. And so disinfection, on the other hand, same thing. Is that disinfectant? Like if I put chlorine in the water, is that going to take care of the cyanide? No, right? So that's why filters have become so popular now and why it's, it's just getting more and more sketchy to just drink the water while it's out there. And I don't want to scare you, okay? Because unless you're seeing carcasses around the water like I was at that one in Utah, Drink the water if you're getting dehydrated, because if you don't, you're going to start making more and more bad decisions, and you'll end up dead anyway. So drink the water. If you don't have any way to disinfect it, try to drink it anyway, because your likelihood of surviving if you don't has dropped significantly. That makes a lot of sense and is, is very, very helpful. So go go the nth degree and take care of it unless you're in a starving or a dehydrated situation. Yeah. I, I like that. I've never thought about the disinfection. I have a uh, platypus. It's supposed to be 99 point whatever percent. Are you saying on top of that, I should do iodine tablets or something like that? It's not a bad idea. There are some viruses that can get through those microns, right? That can still get through. <clears throat> so unless you have something like a reverse osmosis pump, and again, there's, there's just, and there's not that many places in the United States, at least so far, that have viruses in the water. Uh, but that's going to go up, right? That just goes by logic right now. Those are going to go up. So having some kind of disinfectant in addition to the, the um, filtration is a good idea in general, yes. You say that day hikes are some of the most dangerous outdoor activities that people do because they go in unprepared. What would you toss in your pack for a day hike? Same thing. Go through those five basic needs. What do you have to signal with if something goes wrong? If you end up, like we have people out here at these 14ers, right, 14,000-foot peaks out here in Colorado, and they go up, but they don't have anything. And literally, they're wearing, like, shorts, sneakers, and a tank top, right? It's like they don't understand that at 13,000 feet, they could get a serious hailstorm in the middle of July. They could then slip on on a rock and and twist an ankle and be stuck up there overnight, right, at 13,000 feet. 
Yeah, but they got a bag of doobies. I mean, that's going to overcome everything, right? If you're in Colorado, that that's a that 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 that, that, that heals all problems. Well, you may you, you may go you may die peacefully, but it doesn't mean you're going to be any less dead. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, it's a it's a good idea just to just take enough so that you feel like you can survive the night. So, have a good idea of what the weather's like, what can happen in that particular environment, and just take enough. You know, it doesn't have to be a backpack full of stuff that's really weighing you down. It can literally be like a little bivy sack or like I said, a garbage bag, right? Some iodine tablets, a little fire starter, right? Just, it doesn't have to be much. Just a little bit can make a huge difference. You mentioned some credit card thing for starting a fire. What are you talking about? Yeah, they're called Fresnel lenses. F-R-E-N-S-E-L, Fresnel. And it's basically um, a lot of older people would use them, especially instead of a regular magnifying glass, which is really thick and heavy, right? A Fresnel lens is, it's just, it's a lens made out of a, a thin piece of plastic. So it's, it's like a credit card. And you can get huge ones that are like 8 by 10 or 8.5 by 11 or something like these big sheets. Um, but you can just get ones literally the size of a credit card where as long as the sun's out, you can get a fire going. So that really works. That's not just a honey, I shrunk the kids. You can actually put a magnifying glass underneath sun with dry stuff, and it actually works. It magnifies the sun. You ha- you've actually done these things with your own self. I have done these myself, yes. All right. <laughs> this, is, this is really, really good. When you, when you were talking about the Serengeti and, and the traveling that you did, what was the biggest surprise of doing that sort of extreme thing? You know, I think in that particular situation, what blew me away the most was human spirit, the ability to overcome, the formidable spirit of humans and what people are able to do even when they are not conditioned to it. So that will to survive, I think, was one of the most beautiful things I saw out there. Of course, the wildlife and everything else was absolutely gorgeous, but um, that human spirit and really watching people buckle down and just... You know, just go. It was amazing. All right. You're making me want to leave work early today <laughs> and just go watch that show. Where, where can I, where can we stream that, that show? I think it's still on Hulu. I think you can get it on Hulu. And, you know, if, you, right. if you get online and just type in migrations with National Geographic, it just has to be with a Y, M-Y, and then Grations. Um, yeah, there's a few different platforms I think you can get it at if you want. I'm going to go into the lightning round here in just a moment, which is where I give you a topic and you have to, bam, you have to get it to me real fast. Like, bam, bam, give us quick, quick, quick hitters. But but there's something I want a, a deeper dive on before I do these. And that is when I watch these survival shows or when I think about me surviving out in the middle of nowhere without my all my normal luxury accoutrements, because most of the time, all the things I mentioned I can pack up whatever I want and just have a nice, luxurious time. When we're talking about survival, that's a whole different thing. And the one area that I feel entirely ill-equipped for is knowing what I can eat and what I can't eat that's growing out of the ground. Are there any principles or or guidelines for Generally, if green plants look like this, they're good. Or generally, if red plants look that, red berries look like that, they're not good. Or is it purely research you did beforehand before you went to that exact exact location? 
Sear had a good take on this, mostly because we teach people that are going to end up all over the globe, right? We don't know where we're going to get into a conflict next. So we would teach them something called the edibility test. It takes about, oh, 10 minutes or so to explain, so we probably won't do it here. Uh, but the edibility test is a way to look at a plant, test a plant. You look for poisonous characteristics like fine hairs and spines. Most mushrooms stay away from because they've had mushroom experts die from eating the wrong mushroom. Um, things mm. like milky sap, shiny leaves. Uh, those are different things you'd look for and say, okay, those are the things I want to stay away from. And then you'd pick one that looks abundant in the area that doesn't have those poisonous characteristics, test it you know, on your skin, then chew a little bit, taste, make sure it doesn't have soapy, bitter, whatever, right, and so on and so forth. So you go through the test. It takes about 16 hours to do the test. But like I said, again, wow. for the most part, food is not my top priority in a survival situation. Most people get yeah. rescued within three days. Three days is the average. If you're signaling really well and the weather's decent, that rescue can get into you, it should be less than three days that you're out there. If something's crazy, you're way the heck out there, the weather's nasty for a month solid, then yeah, I might be out there for a month and be looking for food sometime in there. But otherwise, survival is how do I save calories? And generally, don't eat. Just leave the food alone. Wait till you get home and you can have that tasty burger, right? Don't worry about it um, because it's, it's not, it's generally not your top priority. This is great info. Love it. All right. We are ready for the lightning round. Jesse, are you ready? This is when I give you a topic and you've got to help us out and like, oh, we'll give you three sentences just because I'm really excited about this topic. Other people, I only give them one sentence. I might give you three sentences because you actually could save somebody's life with those extra two sentences. Are you up for the challenge, Hit Jesse? Hit me, Brian. Let's go. All right, here we go. Finding water. Go downhill. Listen. Boy, you're good at this game. This is great. I mean, she, Dirt, she knows go, how to survive go, go. in on, the lightning round. She's like, all into Okay. Um, how do I know if this water's drinkable or not? If there's nothing dead around it, drink it. If you see bugs in it, I feel good about that water. If bugs can live, it's likely to be okay for me too. Oh, fascinating. That's a little countercultural because I would have thought bugs like are pooping in it, so therefore I can't have it. But bugs are passing a purity test. All right, I, I dig. It, it may still need disinfection, but at least something's living, right? So heavy metals and toxins, less likely to be present if there's bugs. Where to look when I'm foraging for food, even though you just told me I shouldn't worry about it for three days. But let's just imagine, let's just imagine I'm day 19. Where do I look for food? Generally, uh, plants that are near water, that are in water sources, or those are slightly less toxic in general. Uh, just be careful. There's things like water hemlock that are a big no-no. But um, you can be snaring in insects, actually, six legs or less. Those are a really good source of protein and a good source of food as well. Best method for building a fire? Use a brace. Use a platform. So have something below to keep the, the tinder off the ground. And a brace is something about fist high that you set on top of that platform, and that creates the air gap between your tinder and the fuel. Too many people just build, put the tinder down on a platform or just down on the ground, <clears throat> light it, and then start throwing sticks on it, and they snuff it. Right? Okay. All right, let me get this right. You're saying first put a piece of wood on the bottom. Is that what you're saying? Wood, on the, on, on wood the... bark, um, something okay. dry that you can set the tinder on. Okay. And then, and then across you said, it, something that's about fist high. So a branch or something that's about fist in diameter and put that across. And this acts like your throttle. 
So now you put the tender, tinder right up against it and then you lay your fuels across it, right? Like a T across that brace. And if it needs more air, you lift the brace and suddenly there's this influx of air. If it's too, if the twigs and the kindling that you're setting over top of the tinder are too far away from it, then you simply push the brace back and it drops the angle of that and helps it light better. But most people don't use a brace. And so oxygen is one of the main things a fire needs. So if you don't keep that oxygen gap, you're snuffing your flame. Yeah, that's great. That's excellent. Okay. I'm breaking the rules on all these things because <laughs> yeah, come I can Yeah, room. I am. I am. Because you're, you're, you're talking about things that, that make me just kind of want to talk about other things. So, and now I just lost my train of thought. You, you keep saying fascinating things. I'm like, oh, oh I'm going to have to come back to that. And then I, oh, I know it is. Here it is. Here it is. I watch these survival shows and I think I need to go try to do a bow sometime and just get a fire going because that looks really hard and really difficult and would probably be really confidence building if I could do that. Is that a, is that a wise use of time or a stupid use of time? You know, for the whole survival, thing with the, yeah. yeah. Yeah, bow and drill friction fire. For survival, it's stupid. Mm, okay, why? <laughs> you, you better you better do, um, I would say at least a thousand fires with bow and drill in a few different environments if that's what you're gonna use as your go-to in a survival situation. Right, survival fire is much different than primitives. This is bow and drill friction fire is a primitive living skill, and there are I don't know. Last I heard, like twenty two different types of friction fire that were developed around the world. Right, so there bamboo um, fire saw. There's uh, there's all kinds of different friction fires. Those were developed by primitive living cultures. Right, tribal systems around the planet. We don't need that now. And you are not going to learn that in a few hours or a few days to the point of being competent to simply walk out in the woods, make yourself a kit or the desert or wherever, right? And, and be able to do that, just be able to whip it out unless you've done it a lot. I mean a lot. You've spent many, 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 many hours perfecting that and getting new kits and using all kinds of materials. Primitive living. I like that. Yes. Primitive living skills and survival skills. Those are two completely different things. There's overlap in those skills, but they are very different. The focus is completely different. Finding dry tinder. Mm, yeah. There are lots of places. So first look for the thickest canopy. So stop where you are. If you know you need dry canopy or dry tinder, look around for the densest canopy you can find, the thickest area of trees. Often, even if it's been raining for a day or so, you can still go underneath there and find, find dry tinders. Underneath logs, if it is wet for some reason, put it in your clothing, right? Put it on your, I tell women, this is what bra straps are really for, right? Mm. So take that slightly damp tinder and put it underneath your rain gear, inside next to your warm, dry skin. And then as you collect the rest of your firewood, your body is drying out that tinder. Fascinating. Dirt, do you know these things? I'm, I'm ready to start wearing a bra just so I can do that. That's that's fantastic. <laughs> wow. All right. Building a temporary shelter. Sure. So it really shelter craft is one of the most fascinating because it really depends so much on the environment, right? So if I'm in an Arctic and all I've got is snow and whatever I happen to have with me, I'm pretty limited. If I can get below tree line though. Now I've got all these leaves and boughs and things, and I can literally just pile on a bunch of stuff, like grab a bunch of tree boughs, throw them down, and wiggle my way inside. 
and now I'm gonna just clench my muscles, right? And activate all these large muscle groups, and that'll generate up to about 14 times the amount of heat you normally would. So no jumping jacks, because it's dead airspace that keeps you alive, that keeps you insulated and keeps that heat near your body, right? If I'm doing jumping jacks, sure, I'm generating heat, but I'm moving all this air around, so there's no dead airspace. So once you have this like rat's nest, just pile a bunch of debris together and climb in. And now just curl up in the fetal position and just clench your legs together, clench your arms to your sides and keep those feet moving and just make really micro movements that are using and engaging those large muscles and create some dead air space and create some heat. Keep yourself toasty. That's really cool. All right, treating a wound. Mm. Depends on how deep it is, uh, but generally in wounds, you want to make sure they're as clean as possible. If it's a puncture, uh, some places, if you have something and if whatever punctured it is still there, sometimes you'll want to cut it off and just anchor it and then get them out, right? Get yourself to safety because sometimes simply by removing it, you create a lot more trauma and you can lose like vital fluid in the eye. And once that's gone, it's gone. Um, So it really depends on what that, 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 point is. But if it's if you're trying to keep the wound clean, that's a good thing. Stop the bleeding, of course. So direct pressure and elevation. Um, you can use tourniquets now if you know how to do a tourniquet, but don't do it unless you've been taught. <laughs> so there's just a lot around medical to pay attention to. Um, but it is, I recommend with those, even with my classes, things change so much and are updated all the time. And I keep my woofer, my wilderness first responder current. But um, I recommend taking at least a wilderness first aid ca- uh, class from somebody like WMI or WMA. Um, and, then, and then even better, if you're out there a lot, and especially if you're taking care of others, take a woofer, a wilderness first responder course, which is about an eight-day course generally. Uh, see, that's where you lost me. I feel like I am not prepared medically and having the right knowledge. I can put a Band-Aid on and all that kind of stuff. That's fine. Who can't do that? But I've keep thinking, ah, someday I got to go out and I've got to, I've got to really get some serious training on first aid stuff. So I was going to, but then you just said eight days. That's an eight day commitment. Yeah. Wilderness first aid is only about three, two to three days. Two to, but what, that's two what to three. I mean. It's, there's a lot of information, right? There's a lot that can happen in the wilderness and it's, it doesn't happen often, but if it's happening, there's so many, like if you've got abdominal pain, Right. Yep. How many different things can be causing abdominal pain? So being able to diagnose that and treat that. Um, is it a stable, if you, you sprained an ankle, well, is it a sprain or did you do a small break? Did you damage a ligament, right? How do you treat that? So how you splint things, how you diagnose things, there's, there's a lot of processes involved with that, that. There's a reason why doctors get paid what they do. Right. So taking care of that kind of stuff out in the field is an important skill to have, and especially the further out you go and the further away you are from definitive medical treatment, the more important it is to get some kind of training. Fending off predators. I wouldn't do it. I would just act big and loud to begin with. They're not going to mess with you. This is the act like prey, you're prey. So don't act like prey. Be loud, be aggressive, right? Aggressive life. Here we are, right? So something's coming at you. Um, Generally, I'm going to act big and tough and act like I'm a predator. The only time I, I might not do that is with things like a grizzly, right? Where it knows it's the dominant thing in the forest or some kind of bovine and rut. You got a bull moose coming at you? You are not acting tough. (laughs) You're just getting the heck out of the way. (laughs) How do you decide when to move or when to stay put and signal? 
Completely depends on the situation. Most of the time you're gonna stay still though. Be still and bring rescue to you. Very rarely am I gonna try to hike out of a situation. Favorite piece of survival clothing? Mm. Boy, I'd either say my rain gear or my cargo pants. Is there any like brands or, or fibers that you recommend that people wear when they're out in these situations? You know, it used to be people would say the best dressed corpses wear cotton and to never wear cotton. But I tell you, in the desert, cotton is awesome because if I do mm. come across a water source, I can dip that shirt in there and put it on and, oh, right, I feel cool for at least a couple hours. So it really depends on the situation, mostly synthetics, but wool, of course, is always the old standby. Wool is awesome. It'll insulate when it's wet. You know, I think it still retains like 70, 80% of its insulated properties. So wool is amazing. So all the smart wool prop, um, products that we have on the market now are, are really good. So um, generally, I, I prefer natural fibers just because they don't stink as much. It seems like a lot of the synthetics just reek. I mean, after you, you're out there for a few days and you're like, woo, hello. And rain gear, having good quality rain gear, it blocks against wind and rain. And if you get it large enough, you can also make it into a shelter. So um, rain gear is pretty awesome. Best knife. Mm. I prefer my multi-tool. I've got a Victorinox, you know, Swiss Army knife, uh, Trekker. That's what I usually take just because it's got a small saw that's excellent on it. And I like... Um, well, the, the one that I get usually has a one-sided bevel. I'm not crazy about the serrated edges if you can help it. Um, they look fancy, but generally stay away from them. And be careful of chisel edges. Some of them, um, <laughs> a chisel edge, which means it only has one-sided bevel, those are designed for either a right-handed person or a left-handed person holding it. And I've seen a lot of cheap versions out there lately that are le literally left-handed knives that right-handed people are buying. So mm. just... No, learn a little bit of the basics about a knife before you go out and buy it. Um, but I, I like my multi-tool. That's the one I use <clears throat> probably the most often. Um, but if you're really making firewood and batoning wood, then you need a fixed blade. And what's your, what, what's your brand that you mentioned? I, I always use leather. Maybe you mentioned another one that I've never heard of before. What's the brand? It's Swiss Army Knife, Victorinox. Oh, Swiss Army Knife. Victorinox, okay. yeah, is the official name. All right, last one. Okay. One thing that most people forget when thinking about survival. Signaling across the board. I will even mention in my classes right at the beginning. Ah, I'll talk about signaling and then say, okay, tell me what the five basic needs are. And 90% of the time, signaling, they'll mention that last or won't even remember it. Constantly we forget about the signaling part. And it really is essential. In the modern day and age, there are so many people that are going to be out there looking for you. Just make it easier, right? And so many yeah, people take right. off. I mean, they. The, uh, let me finish with a, a classic story here. It was a family who was heading up. They're flying over the Sierra Nevadas. Plane crashes. Long story short, he gets the dad gets out. He's got a couple broken bones. He's trying to start a fire. Lights himself on fire at one point. He's doing all this stuff to try to keep him warm. It's like March in the Sierra Nevadas. Midnight now, right? They're freezing. They're all huddled together. The mom, the daughter, the the father and they're huddling together trying to stay warm, it's midnight and the phone rings. <laughs> Do I need to say more, right? Oh my gosh. Like seriously, right? And the daughter dives down to the bottom of the plane and picks up the, the phones, right? And manages to call 911. Seriously, like six or seven <laughs> hours into the situation, they've used the phone. Okay, so don't, it, everything else is important, right? Of course you wanna maintain your temperature, you wanna drink, stay hydrated, all this stuff. 
but get out of there, right? That should always be on your mind. And too many people head off into the woods without thinking about if something goes wrong, how am I going to attract attention? Jesse, this is so rich. I, I'm going through all my questions here and all the things I want to ask and talk about. And you just have been so, so good in all of them that it just dawns on me. You probably should be creating questions for yourself. What is there anything else that we should be talking about here that we're not talking about? Or is there anything else that you want to talk about that we're not talking about? I mean, it's it's all about you, Jesse. It's all about you. This is great because you've just been a great sport. So what do you want to talk about in our in our remaining time together? I think what's most important for me personally is the wilderness has been a refuge. It's a beautiful, amazing place. And especially working in wilderness therapy, I've seen it heal and help so many people. So though we've been spending the last hour talking about survival and kind of gruesome situations, I just want people to remember and to understand that it is amazing and that it's not nearly as dangerous as we often make it out to be. And that when you're out there, if something does go wrong, breathe. Just relax, have a little faith, and breathe. And the answers will come to you. I'll give my last little pitch for those of us who are don't like to be outdoors all that much, don't camp and whatever. Um, you, don't, you don't need to start taking vacations that are outdoors if you don't like it. Do a vacation fills you up, that's fine. But I will say this, if you do push yourself and become conversant at even just car camping, if you do push yourself and just learn how to how to be in a tent for a night or for two, three nights and not hate life. If you learn that, it's it's really amazing how much self-confidence you're going to grow in. It really is. You, I don't know if it's you tap into the primal rhythms of our species, or I don't know if it's that you realize that if someone foreclosed on your house, you're still gonna live and be fine. I don't know if it's, I, I don't know what it is, but there's just a level of, of self-confidence you gain when you feel the slightest bit conversant outdoors. Now, I thought I was conversant outdoors until Jesse just totally put me to shame. But um, that's my encouragement to you is, is push yourself. It's called the aggressive life. Push yourself. You're not, you're not listening to this podcast because you want someone to tell you the best hotels to go to in Seattle. You're listening to this podcast because you want to hear things that you haven't heard before. You want to be pushed into areas that you haven't gone before. So I hope you've hung with us in this, and I hope you stay on this journey. It's really worth it. Jesse, if someone wants to follow up with you or get more of your knowledge, just give us advertisements for yourself. Absolutely. So I've just opened up a new school called Owl Skills, Outdoorsy Women Learning Survival Skills. So it focuses primarily on women. We do occasionally let the men come along too, uh, but I really consider it to be from marginalized demographics and folks that just don't feel like they generally have access to the wilderness and want somebody that hopefully looks a little bit more like them teaching them the skills. So that's the main thing. We're on Instagram and we got Facebook and we got our webpage. So come on out to either Colorado or we can come to you wherever you're at and come play in your local flora and fauna and show you how to survive out there if you end up in trouble. How long does OWL last for? You, we can do anything from just a few hours, like a lecture. We do day classes, weekend classes, and usually week-long classes. And of course, any of those can be made private as well. So uh, then we tailor it to whatever you want. And then it could be two or three weeks if you wanted in wherever you wanted to go. Jesse, this has been deeper and rich. Thank you so, so, so much. It would be an honor to camp with you someday, though 
I doubt it, but it'd be great if it ever did happen. Thanks for building into us. You, you, you honestly, you, you might have saved some people's lives here today without even knowing it. And it's been fantastic. So thank you. Hey, that's it. Go check out Jesse's stuff. She's she's a deep well who has a lot to offer. And I hope you never have to use any of these skills. But if you're prepared, man, it makes you a better person anyway. So that's it. We'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.